choir is like, we're going to watch it from back here today. Church family, uh, the reason we did that differently this morning is because um, unlike last week where I sent you two chapters to read throughout the week, two really long chapters to read throughout the week, and we kind of just did a really big overview, what we call kind of a, a topical sermon on on suffering and entering into the sufferings of Christ. We are not going to do that this morning. We're going to do what your pastor is far more comfortable doing, and that is uh, going line by line, text by text, uh, through a chapter of the Bible. That chapter of the Bible is going to be Isaiah chapter 1, but it is a lengthy, um, it's, not enti- it's not as lengthy as, as the ones we looked at last week, uh, but it's lengthy enough that instead of reading it uh, all together at the beginning, we're just going to read it throughout the service and go um, through it. So we have 31 verses to cover, uh, and so don't worry, the Word of God will not only be read, it'll be preached, and we're excited about that um, because we know um, that even though the grass withers and the flower fades, the Word of the Lord endures forever. Let's go to the Lord and, and pray over his, his Word this morning. Lord, we do thank you for this, your Word. Lord, as I prepare to preach, would you hide me behind the cross? Um, Father, I do not come uh, with any sort of expert speech or um, uh, supernatural oratory skills, Father, but um, by your grace, I've been saved by the blood of the Lamb, uh, and you have called me to proclaim your word. So would you help me, because I'm weak, um, I'm feeble, but you, Father, are so entirely strong. Uh, so as we hear, as we engage together in the worship of King Jesus by the proclamation of his word, Um, Would you join us together in this engagement, that our ears would be attentive, our eyes would be open, our hearts would be ready to receive that which we so desperately need. And for those of us who may have yet realized, um, not yet realized how desperately we need your word, Father, would you remind us and help us to see that it is good, that it is food for our soul, and it is a very means by which we enter into life and life eternal. Lord, thank you for this time together with this precious church family. Pray your blessings as we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So, as you know, this is the beginning of our Advent series for the Christmas season. We'll be walking through uh, the book of Isaiah, not start to finish because there's 66 chapters, uh, though that, would, that sounds like a good time to me. Um, but uh, just taking five chapters in five weeks, leading us into the new year as we prepare uh, to celebrate what the true Christmas season is all about. So I've entitled this uh, series, So He Became Their Savior. And this morning, I want to look again at Isaiah chapter 1 as what we've entitled, The Need for a Savior. And so as we come to this text this morning, starting our Advent series again, looking at the book of Isaiah, I have fair warning that there are some things that are probably going to cause us to wrestle a little bit this morning. Um, there are things about who we are And our human nature, as human beings, created in the image of God, yet fallen, broken, and sinful, that are going to be a little overwhelming. However, when we see our need for the gospel and our need for a savior, it's going to be clear that what we need is an expert to fix us. And it's going to be a very costly fix. So what I'd like to do, kind of just to get us started, is kind of orient us to the book of Isaiah. And hopefully, if you were able to attend our Wednesday night grow class, an Old Testament survey, some of this will sound a bit familiar to you. But I I want us to do that so we can kind of enter into the original audience and think about what it would be like to receive these words at that time 
from the prophet Isaiah. And so first, just for a couple of minutes, I want to talk about uh, the place of this book, Isaiah, in the story of redemption. The place of this book in the story of redemption. I won't start all the way back in the beginning, but I do want to remember that these books were written in a special time and place. And so for time purposes, we'll just start with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Remember, God made a covenant with Abraham out of Ur, out of the Chaldeans, and God chose for himself uh, a man whose descendants would be that particular nation that would show and display his glory, that would continue to be the seed of the woman, which would be at enmity with the seed of the serpent and that promise of the coming of the Messiah. And so Abraham's grandson, Jacob, remember, had several sons. One of them, uh, the story narrative unfolds, is Joseph, Joseph through the persecution of his brothers, is taken into Egypt. He rises to the top by way of prison, and then he becomes right-hand man to the Pharaoh in Egypt. He saves all the people of Israel by by taking them into Egypt during times of famine. And and then we come to the book of Exodus, and, and by that time, 400 years or so, have passed, and those Israelite nations that were once taken to Egypt to protect them, to feed them, have now become slaves. God, through his man that he called Moses, calls them out of Egypt into the promised land. But because of their lack of faith, they they wander in the wilderness for 40 years. And, And finally, after that entire generation, with the exception of two men, had died off, they were taken into the promised land. They went in and began to take territory surrounding that area we now know as Israel. They go into the promised land and begin to take over the territory, but things aren't all fairies and candy canes. Because, as the book of Judges demonstrates for us, there was no king in Israel, and people were doing what is right in their own eyes. Except there should have been a king in Israel. Yahweh was supposed to be their king. And yet instead what they did is they began to ask for a king like the king of the nations. This part's going to sound pretty familiar to you, I think. And so the people of God reject God's good and righteous rule and they request a king. And so God establishes the monarchy, starting with Saul, who was not a very good king. And then David, as we saw for a year or two, uh, started out very great but didn't finish well. His son Solomon, David's son, actually mirrors that. Starts out well, but didn't finish well. And so Israel, uh, because of Solomon and Solomon's um, pagan idolatry, becomes divided. The nation is split. There's a northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom named Judah. The kingdom is divided with the line of David, with the line of the promised seed of Israel, who is going to rule in the southern kingdom of Judah. Well, in 722 B.C., the northern kingdom falls. The Samaritan capital city of Samaria falls under the Assyrian attack. The Assyrians scatter the people of the northern kingdom out. And and now we finally arrive to where we are in Isaiah's time. It's between the, the fall of the northern kingdom, which Assyria, a pagan Gentile nation, has come in and taken and overtaken that land, scattered them, scattering them out. And the time of Judah. Judah is still there. They're still ruling. But now uh, Isaiah is coming as a prophet to that southern kingdom. He's warning them because Assyria is knocking on the door. And they are not living according to the word 
of God. He's warning them, but he's also promising them things that are to come. And so after all that history, this is where we are in the Bible story. We are speaking to the southern kingdom who has not yet gone into the exile, but we know the rest of the story, right? In 586 BC, not the Assyrians, but the Babylonians, uh, Babylonians excuse me, are going to take them over. So the structure of the book itself is actually a bit difficult for us as well because it's not a linear narrative, right? This sermon's going to have a beginning, a middle, and Lord willing, an ending. Uh, but you don't start with Isaiah and then these things begin to unfold and then this happened and then there's a conclusion at the end. Instead, it's some of the same themes cycling over and over. Sometimes he's talking to the nations. Sometimes he's talking to Israel. Sometimes he's speaking of a suffering servant who is to come, being a savior for his people. Sometimes he's speaking of a king who is to come to rule victoriously in Jerusalem. So this book actually is more like a mosaic, right? That's for you, baby. I know you love art. It's our anniversary. I hate art, but I know what a mosaic is. Um, If you look close, a mosaic looks like this very chaotic thing. But then you zoom out and you find that it's a portrait. That's really similar to what Isaiah is. So so that's what I think we need to know about Isaiah before we dive in. So this, this first meditation from Isaiah 1, again, is what we're calling a need for a Savior. Here, God, through the prophet, is bringing Israel to trial. And he's doing so to convince them that they are indeed in need of a Savior. They are in need for someone to rescue them. How they're doing things so far is only going to lead them to judgment and condemnation from the Lord himself. So you ready? Let's go to Isaiah chapter 1 verse 1. I'm going to read these verses as we go through them. And first of all, we see the vision setting. The vision setting of verse 1. Isaiah chapter 1 verse 1 says, The vision of Isaiah, the son of Amoz, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem, in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. Those names are four sequential kings of the southern kingdom of Judah. And so remember, northern kingdom, they're gone, already fallen, taken over. And so the target audience is just this southern kingdom, uh, a group of people who have not yet been taken away. But if they don't turn around from their pagan worship and idolatry, that taken away is going to come very quickly for them. So we're introduced to the prophet himself, Isaiah. We know that he's the son of Amaz. That's pretty much the um, exhausting of his biographical information. It's basically all we have of him. And we're, we're told this vision, which includes the whole book, but particularly focuses on chapter one, is his vision about what is going on during the reign and rule of these four kings, Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. As they're ruling over decades, this is the vision that's given. So remember, we're zooming out on the details of their kingships, their citizenry, and all that's going on with the imposing foreign powers. Isaiah's vision is telling us exactly what's happening. It's setting the stage for us uh, for the time of Judah during this reign of kings. So God's going to zoom out. He's going to show us This whole mosaic right here in chapter 1. In order to give us this vision Isaiah saw concerning this time period. So we see the vision setting first. The second thing we see in verses 2 through 4 
is a divine indictment. We are going to see, indeed, a divine indictment. This book starts out hard. It's not like some of those Pauline epistles that you write, you know, and, or you read, and Paul opens up, and he's just talking about his love for the church, and how I long to be with you, and I've, I've missed you so, wonderful saints of the Lord. This book starts out with an indictment. It's a courtroom setting. Verse 2 tells us, Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. I have nourished and brought up children, and they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner, and the donkey its master's crib. But Israel does not know. My people do not consider. A lot to break down there already, right? So we dive into verse 2, and he's calling all of heaven and earth to give testimony to the truthfulness of what he's about to say. He's saying, listen, all of you heavenly beings, the cosmos, all creation. He is calling them as witnesses, but he's not just calling them as witnesses against Israel, but to be witnesses of their own righteousness, his own righteousness, excuse me, and justice in the matter. He's calling them to witnesses of how he is not the one who's done anything wrong in this scenario. And he uses two images there, one of parenting and one of taking care of animals to hammer home this point. Notice the first one. He says, I've nourished and brought up children. Remember who this is, right? We're we're talking about the Lord here, the perfect one. We're talking about the God who does not sin, who doesn't make parenting mistakes like us. I mean, imagine, parents, what a great parent you'd be if you had no sin. If you knew everything exhaustively, if you're totally wise in absolutely everything you have said, that you never once had an ill motive even in your parenting, never went over the top with your anger or under the top with your passivity. Imagine every single point of your parenting being perfect. Now, teenagers, cover your ears, but, but that's not like our parenting, is it? But this is the Lord. Get this. This is the Lord who is the parent in this imagery. He, he's saying, I have nourished and brought up children. And, and how's that gone for the Lord, the perfect parent? Well, what does he say next? And they have rebelled against me. Now, I'm just going to go ahead and throw a totally side comment here. But, but while it's true that we as parents make mistakes that sometimes mess up our kids or divert them from what they should do, it's also true that just because they end up in a bad way does not necessarily mean it's because we wrecked it. Right? Here is God. Here is the perfect parent. And what are his children like? They're rebellious against him. See, there's a, there's a form of parenting that basically says if, if, if you ever see anything ever wrong in your kids, it, it was your fault. If they rebel against the Lord, then you must trace back and look at exactly what you did wrong because you're wrong somewhere. Because if you were right, then they would not have gone astray. Well, if, if the perfect parent of the universe has children who rebel and go astray then certainly it happens to us as well. So so it's not that we shouldn't examine ourselves. Don't hear me say that. We should. But but here God is saying, I have reared them. And what have they done? They've rebelled against me. 
with all his kindness and goodness, he provided for them. He made promises for them. He gave them righteous law. He always spoke the right thing. When he brought discipline, it was always in the exact right amount. He never put down the rod and said, you know, I was a little angry there. I was a little out of control. I'm sorry. When I did that, I wasn't thinking clearly. He's a perfect parent, and yet they rebel against him. I mean, just imagine, by the way, you're hearing this and you're the Jews, knowing, oh, he's talking about me. This is my father condemning me. And it's not because my father is unrighteous, but he's perfectly righteous. And I've rebelled against him. There's no way that Israel or, by way of typology, us, could say, no, 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 God, this is... This is your fault. So then he goes on to the next imagery there in verse 3. He says, the ox knows its owner and the donkey its master's crib. He says, okay, let's not even talk about sensible people here then. Let's talk about how animals act with their masters. The ox knows its owner. The owner comes out. Sometimes they may need a little encouragement, sure. But eventually the ox knows and does what it's supposed to do. Even the stubborn donkey. They're known for not doing what they're supposed to do. He says, you're worse than a donkey. (laughs) At least a donkey knows where it gets food. At least a donkey knows where it's going to rest. But he says, Israel does not know. My people do not consider. And what we can supply and kind of push in there is, is me. Israel does not know me. Israel does not consider me. The brute beast and animals act more in according to how they are created than what you, O Israel, my chosen people, are acting toward me, your God. Then in verse 4, he begins to directly address them. He says, Alas, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, a brood of evildoers. You can see already that this isn't really going well, right? This is just the intro to Israel. The inspector has shown up and there's a lot to report. There's a brood of evildoers. In other words, he's saying, your parents were just like this. Everybody loves to hear that, don't they? And your parents' parents, they were like this. He says, children who are corruptors, they've forsaken the Lord. They have provoked to anger the Holy One of Israel. They have turned away backward. picture is very bleak at this point. He says, you've sinned, you've forsaken the Lord, you have despised me, and you are completely estranged from me. I know who you are, but you don't know me. You wouldn't know me if I walked down your street. That is their indictment, and it is divine, and it's difficult to hear. But that brings us thirdly, not only to their divine indictment, but their wretched condition. Uh, Really what this part is, it's, it's the consequences And again, the Lord uses several different images here. What have been the consequences of their behavior and this indictment of them not knowing him? He starts out in verse 5 by saying, why should you be stricken again? You will revolt more and more. There's an appeal showing, showing really the Lord doesn't want them this way. That he longs for them. That he's not just dusting off his hands here saying, I'm done with you. I mean, maybe some of us would feel that way, right? If we were giving and we were serving, we're caring over and over, and at the end of the day, there's just zero change, I'm just about ready to give up. 
But God is saying, what, will, will you be stricken again? What you're doing, it's, it's going to bring about a striking. You will revolt more and more. Notice then the description. It's like a physical body. He says, the whole head is sick. We've had lots, unfortunately, lots of sickness going around in our county the last couple of months and in our church community. Some of you may have had the, the sinus junk or had the flu recently or the stomach bug. Maybe you've had ear infections. Some of you have eye troubles. Some of us have a, a toothache. Some of us have TMJ problems. But imagine having the whole head sick. The ears, the eyes, the headache, the nose, the throat, the jaw, the teeth. He says, this is how ill you are. The whole head is sick. And he says, and the whole heart faints. All of your emotions, they're faint. You're weak. You have no strength in and of yourselves. He says, from the sole of the foot, even to the head, there is no soundness in it. Just imagine, by the way, a building inspector coming in and looking at this building and saying, well, just nothing's good, right? Roof ain't good. It better be. Um, roof, <laughs> roof ain't good. Walls ain't good. Foundation not good. Fellowship hall not good. Got termites. Office building's got to be torn down. Whole thing's bad. Listen, that's exactly what the Lord's saying to the people of Israel right now. There's no soundness in it. He says, but wounds... And bruises and putrefying sores. They've they've not been closed, the sores. They've not been bound up. This gets a little gross. It's, It's not soothed with ointment. The wounds have not been cleaned or closed. That means that that pus has not been cleansed or pressed out in any way. There's there's no medical attention being brought to this being whatsoever. How wretched is Israel described here? But he goes on. He moves from the image of their physicality even to the land itself. Verse 7, he says, your country is desolate. Your cities are burned with fire. Strangers devour your land in your presence. And it is desolate as overthrown by strangers. So they look out to this beautiful land. Remember the city on the hill. And what do they see? They see in the surrounding areas the Assyrians coming in and taking their crops and their people, their children, their women. And he says, here you are, Jerusalem. Your land is desolate. It's overthrown by foreigners. And in verse 8, speaking specifically of the city of Jerusalem, he says, So the daughter of Zion is left as a booth in a vineyard. We may not get that, but but in that time, if you you look over a vineyard, that day and age, what what would happen is there would be a watch booth that would be built up over the vineyard, sticking up out of above the vines, and there was a watchman there who would watch for wild animals or marauders and other things. In other words, everything else is flattened, and the one thing you see sticking up and remaining still is Mount Zion, Jerusalem. He says, as a hut in a garden of cucumbers, as a besieged city, verse 9, unless the Lord of hosts... So so the only way to explain why Jerusalem is left as a booth in the vineyard, how did they remain? How have they not been taken at this point? Unless the Lord of hosts had left to us a very small remnant. In other words, it was the Lord who protected Jerusalem, who protected the daughter of Zion. There were only a few remnant. Otherwise, do you know what they would be like, he says? 
Sodom and Gomorrah. Not a trace of existence whatsoever. He says we would have become like Sodom. We would have been made like Gomorrah. There would have been nothing left of us. Utterly overthrown. And God says even in the midst of all this devastation. All of this judgment in light of your sin. There is yet a remnant left. And why is that? It's because the Lord did it. The Lord kept his promise. And left a few survivors. Which leads us now to point Number four, we've seen the vision setting and the divine indictment, the wretched condition. Now, you think it's, you're waiting for it to get better already? Not yet. Verses 10 through 17, what we see is their futile worship. This might wreck us a little bit. How is that going to get fixed? See, you can hear the people kind of talking about themselves. Okay, like, Lord, this isn't the first time you've indicted us. or We've been aware of our wretched condition. Sure, yes. All right, it's gotten bad. We'll admit And if they're convinced at this point, we're not doing the right thing, okay, what do we need to do? Ah, I know. The temple, right? The sacrifices. Prayer. If we just go back and really get earnest with public worship, all this will be fixed. If we just go and get those burnt offerings going again, if we just get prayer just to the right God and turn from all those other gods... All we've got to do is go through all the religious rituals that have been set before us and everything will be fixed. The Lord says, no, that's futile. Verse 10, look at it. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. By the way, if if you want to insult an Israelite during this time period, tell them they're like Sodom. That's like, I I don't even know the equivalent of that to us. This is Jerusalem, the city of God. It's being ruled by another kind of Sodom, he says. So verse 10, hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the law of our God, you people of Gomorrah. Now the people are thinking, okay, we just thought you were talking about the rulers, but now you're coming for us too. So we're like Sodom and Gomorrah. And this is what the Lord's doing. He says, imagine if Sodom and Gomorrah, continuing in their sin, had the right form of worship. How would that have helped them? Because because that's what they want to do. Look at verse 11. He says, To what purpose is the multitude of your sacrifices to me? Imagine if they just slaughter multitudes of animals. And then God looks down and is like, "What? What's that to me? They're dead animals. I own the cattle on a thousand hills. Whole universe is mine. What's the multitude of your sacrifices? And they're like, Look, 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 God, we we, we did it. We, We got the sacrifices. And he's like, What does that do for me? The obvious answer at this point is nothing. He says, I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams. Stop it. Stop bringing the rams. But but Lord, you're the one that told us to bring the rams. Stop it. I've had enough of them. And the fat of fed cattle, I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs and goats. Well, what do we do then, Lord? Look at verse 12. When you come to appear before me, Who has required this from your hand to trample my courts? He says, you're coming in with dirty feet of iniquity and sin. You've come into my courts, not for holiness, but you've come into my courts and actually made them filthy. Verse 13, therefore, here's the command. He says, bring no more futile sacrifices. Incense is an abomination to me. Incense, by the way, throughout the Bible, we know was a a well-pleasing aroma to the Lord. It's like a barbecue, right? It's 
like pulled pork for some of us, and that some of us means me, um, right? You ever drive into a neighborhood, right? You open your door, take a whiff, <sighs> somebody's cooking, right? God says, that which was once incense to me, it's an abomination in my eyes. The incense of the temple, what was once a sweet smelling aroma to his nostrils, now makes him want to vomit. He says, the new moons, the Sabbaths, and the calling of assemblies, I cannot endure iniquity and the sacred meeting. I can't take it anymore. Stop meeting. Stop having new moons. Stop having Sabbaths. I, he says, I can't endure it. Your new moons and your appointed feast, my soul hates. And, and let's ask, whose new moons were they? They're the ones that God had given They're the feasts that he appointed. But because of the condition of his rebellious children, the creatures that did not know their own master, these people who were sick from the top of the head to the bottom of their feet, none of that religious worship did anything for them in the eyes of God. What does God say? He says, they are a trouble to me. Now, if God is all-powerful, And he does not weary, nor does he sleep. How bad does it have to be for him to say, this is a trouble for me? Is anything too big for him? Theologically, we would say no. But he says, this is. This is a trouble for me. Think of Habakkuk 1.13, right? One of the things that God cannot do, you cannot look upon wickedness with favor. He says, I'm weary of bearing them. The one who is not weary, who is never weary, is weary and tired. He says, I'm done bearing these from you. So the people think, okay, well, obviously, we won't do the animal sacrifices, Lord. Good. Maybe we should pray. That's what we'll do. We'll pray, and we'll pray real hard. Let's keep reading. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. This is just not getting any better, is it? The deeper you go down, the the worse it's getting. When when you spread out your hands, he says, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to hide my face. I'm not looking. But we're spreading out our hands, Lord. I'm not looking. We're praying. I'm not looking. Even though you make many prayers, I will not hear. Why? Your hands are full of blood. You don't see it. You think you're spreading out your hands. I'm looking at them and they are, they're full of blood. He says in verse 16, Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Put away the evil of your doings from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Rebuke the oppressor. Defend the fatherless. Plead for the widow. In other words, with all of this stuff... Just do what I've been telling you to do. Now, we know that that history tells us that's not going very well so far. Wouldn't you agree? I mean, that actually is kind of the problem, isn't it? If we've been with Israel for, for a thousand years and generation after generation with very few exceptions for even then just very moments of time that are brief have been corrupt up to this point in Israel's history. And so, so maybe there's even a bit of sarcasm here. In verses 16 and 17, a lot of all these things, clean yourself up, 
if you can. To which their answer may be something like, well, well, if you won't take our sacrifices, Lord, if you won't hear our prayers, if all of these things fail to work, well, then what hope is there? Then in verses 18 through 20, you ready for it to get good? <laughs> See, you are a typological Israel, but you're not the people of Israel. And even you hearing this because you know the status of your own soul before him apart from the work of Christ are like, all right, somebody get me out of this. Imagine Israel. And look what he says. Just, just notice the, the tone-changing word here, come. See, what we see here is a gracious call. Look at what he says in verse 18. Come now. Let us reason together, says the Lord. How precious is that? Like, when they finally have embraced the reality of who they are in the midst of all of this description, in the sense of then, okay, Lord, we can't do the sacrifices, we we don't need to pray, well, then what do we do? How sweet would this verse be? He says... Come now and let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall be as wool. See, the present reality is their sins are like scarlet. That's what we just read in the first 17 verses, right? They're they're red like crimson. They shall be in the future white as snow, as wool. Verse 19 and 20, if you're willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you shall be devoured by the sword, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Now here's what's interesting. It, it ends there, right? The, the, the Lord's vision right there ends, and, but there's an unresolvedness to this at this point, isn't there? Because if it's not going to be by the mere repentance of the people or of by the sacrificial system, if, if all that's a trouble, if it's burdensome to the Lord, the question then is, how? How will we then, Israel, be made white as snow? How will this people, who have such a decadent history of rebellion against the Lord, become like wool? And at this point, the story's not answered. That's coming later. But it's clearly demonstrating here that they need a Savior. As we move on in verses 21 through 23, we then notice a stark contrast. There's a stark contrast here. He says, how faithful the city, verse 21. That's the way he once viewed her. The the faithful city, he says, like a faithful wife has become a harlot. That's what you are to me. It was full of justice, righteousness lodged in it. But now, murderers. That's who is now inhabiting Jerusalem. And so here we we just see a stark contrast between what she was and what she is now. Verse 22, he says, your silver has become dross. What was once valuable is now worthless. He says, your wine mixed with water. Verse 23, your princes are rebellious and companions of thieves. Everyone loves bribes and follows after rewards. They do not defend the fatherless, nor does the cause of the widow come before them. So so think about this. The fatherless come from help. They come for help from the leaders. And the leaders, they don't have anything they can get out of these kids. So they don't help them. 
They don't bring about justice. These widows come, and because these widows don't have anything to offer by way of their benefit or bribes, they don't help them. To start contrast from what they once were. And then we come to verse 24 all the way to the end. And we continue to see here a hint of a coming resolution. A hint of a coming resolution. Verse 24 tells us, Therefore the Lord says, The Lord of hosts, and get this, The mighty one of Israel. Like the fact that that he still says, Mighty one of Israel is astonishing, isn't it? He's the mighty one of who? Or whom? Is it whom? Whom. Thank you. Callahan. Of Israel. Of this very Israel that he just condemned point by point by point by point. He says, I'm still your mighty one. I'm still Yahweh. I'm still yours. He says, ah, I will rid myself of my adversaries. And take vengeance upon my enemies. Verse 25. I will turn my hand against you. And thoroughly purge away your dross. And take away all your alloy. I will restore your judges as at the first. And your counselors as at the beginning. Afterward you shall be called the city of righteousness. The faithful city. Look how far she's fallen. And he says. I'm going to do something. That will once again make you the city of righteousness. I'm going to do something where they will once again call you the faithful city. Not the harlot. Not the unfaithful one. But righteous and faithful. Something is coming. The Lord himself will do this very thing. Verse 27. Zion shall be redeemed with justice and her penitence with righteousness. So the question here that's raised is where on earth is that justice going to come from? Because they were redeemed, it says, by justice. Their own justice? Is this their their own merit? Those who repent will be redeemed by righteousness? But, But look what happens to rebels and sinners who continue. Look what happens to them in verse 28. The destruction of transgressors and of sinners shall be together. And those who forsake the Lord shall be consumed. So again, if you're an Israelite and and you're hearing this message with ears to hear, you know it's a warning, but you also know that it's a promise. Verse 29, for they shall be ashamed of the terebinth trees. This section, by the way, we've got to explain it because it's all about putting away their, their idols. It says they'll be ashamed by their terebinth trees. Anyone in here have an oak tree in their yard? Does this mean that you need to be ashamed of them? No. See, these are trees that they used in sacred gardens of idol worship. He says, you're going to be ashamed of that. Which you've desired, and you shall be embarrassed because of the gardens which you have chosen. How many of you have gardens? Not this garden. This was an idolatrous garden where they worshipped their idols. They will blush. They'll say, how have we worshipped idols who are not God? The time is coming where idolatry by righteousness will be fully and finally dealt with. In verse 30 and 31, it says, For you shall be as a terebinth whose leaf fades, and as a garden that has no water. The strong shall be as tender, and the work of it as a spark. Both will burn together, and no one shall quench them. See, this coming resolution, it's heavily weighted in judgment. But in the midst of that judgment... 
There is the seed of hope. There is the seed of promise for all who repent. And there ends chapter 1. And you say, all right. Like what now? (laughs) Well, we we have to look at the rest of the book. That's why we're doing this as a series. Um, But how is he going to do this? See, see, what we have here is basically a problem that's got a coming solution. And what this book does is it, is it digs deeper and deeper, deeper into the problem. But at the same time, that little tiny seed of promise is, is continues to, to tell us that your sins will be made as white as snow. It will be a seed that will continue to be unwoven throughout the rest of this beautiful book in a glorious way. That promise that Zion will be redeemed by justice and righteousness. Where does that justice and righteousness come from? Well, that's what's going to be revealed in the rest of the book, piece by piece. It's going to unfold for us. But, but here, mostly, I want us to stop at the reality that God's people have a need for a Savior. And what do we do with this? Remember, we are New Testament Israel. The Lord's not talking to some geopolitical, physical reality of land here. He's talking typologically in picture to the people of God. We can identify greatly that we also are in need of a Savior. In fact, first, by way of application, we remember that Israel is a microcosm of all humanity. So Israel's condemnation is our condemnation. Israel's condemnation, it's ours. This need for a Savior was not exclusive for the people of Israel. We might look and say, you know what? They They had so much light, so much information, so much privilege, so much understanding. Isn't it just a terrible thing they turned from the Lord? But but the Bible goes on to tell us that that this is our problem too. In fact, turn with me to Romans chapter 3, if you will. A text I'm sure you're all familiar with. Romans chapter 3. This is exactly what Paul described. After he essentially does the same thing with the, with the Jews and the Gentiles, he makes this conclusion in, in Romans chapter 3 verse 9. He says, what then? Are we better than they? Now listen, Paul here is actually speaking of are we Jews better than they Gentiles. But let's just reverse that. Since since we've clearly seen the sin of Israel, we must ask, are we non-Jews any better than they? He says, not at all. For we've previously charged with Jews, both Jews and Greeks, that they are all under sin. And then he says this, Romans 3.10, as it is written, there's none righteous, no, not one. There's none who understands, there's none who seeks after God. They've all turned aside, they all... Together have become unprofitable. There is none who does good. No, not one. Their throat is an open tomb. With their tongues, they've practiced deceit. The poison of asp is under their lips. Whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways. And the way of peace, they've not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now, for some of you who look in a mirror, that might seem to be a little bit of an overkill, probably. You might say, well, wait a minute, is this, this is just hyperbole, right? 
I mean, as I examine myself, as, as I'm the inspector of my own righteousness, I got the clipboard out. Now, let me go examine myself. Okay, how's my heart? How's my mind? How's my tongue? How's my interaction with other people? How's my love? Some might actually think at the end of your own self-inspection that you're pretty good. Particularly compared to other people, right? Like, I'm not as bad as Hitler. Well, congratulations. Like, why is that always the standard we go to? Really hard. (laughs) But here's the problem. Here's the problem. It's that in the end... The inspection is not yours to make. It's God's inspection to make. And the God we're talking about is completely, perfectly righteous, holy, wise, all-knowing God. For some of you, even as I'm describing this God, internally you'd hate to admit it, but you're gnashing your teeth at Him. Because chapter 1 of Isaiah, it's you... Because he's been good to you. He's provided for you beyond what we deserve. And you have rebelled against him. You are worse than an ox and a donkey. Why? Because you rebel against your maker. You are spiritually sick from the top of your head to the bottom of your feet. There's no soundness that can be found. And you say, I don't see it. Well, you're not the inspector. God is. And you say, well, if that's how God sees me. And he's going to put me down that way. Well, then to hell with him. No, my friend, it will be to hell with you unless you come and let us reason together. Come now, verse 18. Let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your skins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. But it's only by the righteousness and justice that God has promised to bring. And so maybe you say, you know what? I know what I can do. I'll find religion. That'll fix it. But we've already seen. Religion won't fix it. Nothing changes the fact that you fit into Romans 3 and Isaiah 1. Israel's story is likewise our story. We have forsaken the Lord. We are by nature estranged from Him. We are like Sodom and Gomorrah with all our religious attempts and duties. They are a trouble to Him apart from the promise of a Savior. And so the second thing we desperately need to see is, friends, in light of our condition, how great must the solution be to resolve such a great need? And let me tell you, the solution is great. If this is really a description of of who and what we are, it's bad, right? We would agree, it's bad. This is sickness. It's wretchedness. But how great must be the solution? I mean, if I brought a person in here and they had open sores and their nervous system was just jacked and... They have cancer in their skin. Their intestines are shutting down. Everything is wrong about them. And I say, I have this single thing right here to fix that person completely whole, completely sound, completely healed. How great must be the solution to fix such a wretched condition? Not only that, but how merciful 
and loving must God be who provides the solution to such a rebellious people? See, most of us know exactly what it's like to give up on somebody, don't we? We hate to admit it. It's a point of shame for most of us. But we know what it's like to be done. We know what it's like to say, I just can't take it anymore. You're a trouble to me. But let me ask you, would you be mad at the doctor if that was really your condition? Like, if he diagnosed you with this problem, you come in and say, hey, doc, how's it going? Well, you know, all your internal organs are shutting down. Your entire nervous system's just racked with pain because of your disease. He's just identifying the problem. Would you be like, I hate you. But it's the doctors to diagnose. That's what God's doing here. He's simply diagnosing and yet he's the one we're tempted to get angry with because he sees us so honestly. But he also is the one who says, I have the solution. I have something I can give you that will fix everything. And you say, I hate God. Why? Because he said, I'm a sinner. But it's what you are. And he's given you a remedy in Jesus. He came from heaven to purchase us. He came to be scourged, to have the hairs of his head and his beard plucked out. We will reject him and nail him to a cross, call him full of demons. And he will do that very thing to provide the solution to your problem. What an unloving God us Christians have. My friend, you don't understand. You think you see clearly, but you don't see it all. This God who unfolds in the rest of the book of Isaiah, declaring both the trouble of the nations and the trouble of Israel, is the one who himself says, I will become your Savior. Isaiah 59, Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, nor is his ear heavy that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have separated you from your God and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he will not hear. And what in the world will he do in order to fix that? For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant and as a root out of dry ground. He has no form or comeliness. And when we see him, there's no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows, And acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised. And we did not esteem him. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken. Smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. And by his stripes, we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We've each turned, every one, to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. How merciful and loving is the God who sees us as he sees Israel in chapter 1 to bring such a perfect solution at such a great and sacrificial cost. So our response is, we worship. Let us worship. You know what's coming. You already know the punchline. 
But when we're about to sing, O come, O come, Emmanuel, it has to be to the degree that we feel our own wretchedness, our brokenness, and the longing to be made whole, that our longing for Jesus to come will be strengthened and increased. For Christians, some of you have very low self-esteem, low esteem of yourselves. You think you're pretty bad. And I say this with the sincerity of heart and as nicely as I can say it because I do love you. But you aren't even close. However bad you think you are, it's not even close to how God sees you apart from Christ. So stop moping over it. Stop being depressed about it. Stop wallowing in it. Why? Why? Because a greater solution has been given in Jesus Christ. See, it's not honoring to the Lord to wallow in your own wretchedness. It's honoring to the Lord to, yes, see your own wretchedness, but then the glory in His salvation. It's not spiritual to wallow in your guilt. It's spiritual to recognize your guilt and glory in His perfect righteousness. May God give us help as we look next week and in the coming weeks to the work of the coming and coming again of King Jesus, our Savior. And may he use these things to transform us more and more into his image. Let's stand together as we close. Lord, may we be moved with gratitude this morning. May we know that Jesus is our resolution. He is indeed our remedy. He is the one who made us in his righteousness white as snow. So may we worship. For any who are here who, who may have a high esteem of their own righteousness, whatever it may be, in grace and love by your spirit, show them how much love you have demonstrated And the sending of your son, Jesus Christ, to die for the ungodly. Lord, thank you for this wonderful and glorious season that we can think of the promises that you have made to your people. Of Jesus, the Messiah, of Christ. May we make much of him in this season, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. As we prepare for our time of invitation this morning, um, hopefully, Lord willing, it's pretty clear for those of you who are in Christ, maybe it's just a period of life that you wrestle with when you hear, look, look this is undoubtedly a very hard sermon uh, to talk about this, this week. Your propensity there is to stay there and, and wallow in your own wretched condition. But you remember, when you do that, you're missing the gospel, right? Like the, the point of the gospel is not just that you're bad. The point is that You're worse than bad, you're enemies, and yet while we were enemies, Christ died for us. And that, that is what fuels us to live a life of joy, of gratitude, of worship to the King of Kings. So don't just stay there, don't don't walk away from the sermon with, with doom and gloom and hatred for yourself, friends. Instead, recognize that you've been bought with a great price And rejoice. 
live a life that is full of rejoicing in the Lord for what he's done. But if you're here this morning, and maybe you struggle with the other side, you, you fail to really see your condition. Just simply ask yourself, is this my diagnosis or is this the diagnosis of my creator? If, if the Bible is true, and this is the authority of God's holy word, we live under it, then what it says about the human condition is correct. And I hate to tell you, but there's, there's a couple millennia of evidence of the human condition that says his assessment is adequate. We are wretched. And yet, if you are aware of that, you recognize that. Recognize that even hearing that is a grace from God. The ability that, that he's allowed you to see what you are apart from him is an opportunity for you to repent and receive the gift of his righteousness. And the only reason you can do that is because he's paid for the sins of his people so that a just God can look upon those who are wretched, even in Israel and even, again, in us, his people, and it can be paid for. Justice can be done, and it was done on the cross of Christ for your sins. And righteousness was given to all those who repent and believe. So if you're here this morning and you don't know yourself to truly be a Christian, and maybe you even struggle with this condition that you've, you've seen today, this divine indictment that's been given, please don't just see the problem and avoid the solution, but receive the solution. And today you can live in a freedom that you've never known before with a purpose, even as we saw in our kids' time, that you were created for, to bring honor and glory to King Jesus through responding to his sacrifice. And so we're going to have a time after the service at any point in time. I'll be down front today as well as some of our deacons. We'll, uh, every one of the church members that will be waiting for the business meeting will wait. They will wait a long time. And if the Lord does a work in your heart, Please come down front and we will show you more about what it means to be a Christian, how you don't need to have some sort of magical prayer. You simply need to have your heart changed and the Spirit of God speaking to you through His Word. And All you must do is call out to Him and ask Him for forgiveness. And He is faithful and just to cleanse your heart of any unrighteousness and to save you today. So if you have been stirred by the preaching of God's Word this morning and you want to respond to this gospel call, please, at the end of our service... Come down front. We would love to share Christ with you this morning. For the rest of us, we've got a lot of work to do. Remember, the sermon doesn't stop as soon as we say amen and dismiss. The sermon is continually applied to our lives every single day. Because it's the true and right word of God. So for us, let's take what we need. and Let's continue to seek Him, pursue Him, and grow. Thank you so much, church family, for being here. It's a pleasure to be your pastor. Thank you for letting me preach hard sermons to you. And I hope that you know that they're, they're hard for me too. I've got to hear them six days out of the week. You only got to hear them one. Um, but God has given us a gift in his word and we need to see it. We need to know we need a savior.